You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 493 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. And in this episode, I am going to be discussing in depth Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus, so we should reject it. An article at ninemarks.org. Published October 31st, 2022, by a certain Jonathan Lehman. A little bit of backstory about Jonathan Lehman. He is editorial director of Nine Marks, which is uh, basically the rebranding, as I understand it, if I understand correctly, of the Center for Church Reform, which was founded in 1998 by Mark Deaver, who uh, in 1994, became senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. That is to say, basically, this group is uh, something of a Christian political engagement think tank, I think, kind of, sort of, with regards to Christians in particular. They have some thoughts on how we should reform our polity. Not necessarily uh, if reading this article by Jonathan Lehman is any indication, not necessarily that we should be reforming the country, but we should be reforming the church. And not knowing a lot about Jonathan Lehman before I read this article, not really knowing a lot about Mark Deaver or ninemarks.org, I came to this seeing the title, getting a certain impression right off the bat from it, sent to me by who else? My neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. I read the title and I immediately thought, oh boy, this is probably something I'm not going to agree with, right? Because I guess the title contains the premise, it contains the chief uh, argument or objective, or the whole point and conclusion of what we're going to be delving into in greater depth from Jonathan Lehman. But then I went ahead and I I read the whole thing, and sure enough, several points throughout, uh, I find some significant disagreement with Mr. Lehman. A little more backstory on Jonathan Lehman is that he edits the Nine Marks series of books, as well as the Nine Marks Journal, which is, uh, it appears, something of a magazine periodical put out by Nine Marks. His little bio here in the margins also says that he is author of several books on the church. And since his call to ministry, Jonathan has earned a Master of Divinity from Southern Seminary, as well as a PhD in ecclesiology that is basically the science of church, if you will, the study of church, churchology from the University of Wales. He lives with his wife and four daughters in Cheverly, Maryland, 
where he is an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church. So that's a little bit about Jonathan Lehman. As for his article, besides the title, Christian Nationalism Misrepresents Jesus, So We Should Reject It, what does he actually have to say here? Well, why don't I do this? I'll start off from the top, read the entire thing in one go, in one smooth, uninterrupted motion, and then I'll go item by item where I am quoting significant portions a paragraph at a time or a line at a time with some response. How's that? Let's do that. So from the top, best I can tell folks these days use the phrase Christian nationalism and Christian nation in one of two ways. Some mean that Christianity should influence the nation and its laws. Others mean that the nation and its government should actually identify as Christian. The problem is many people, Christian and non-Christians, advocates and critics, don't recognize the difference, which is one reason I believe we should drop the label altogether. Advocates of Christian nationalism in terms of influence have in mind Christians opening their Bibles, doing their best to understand what God requires of a nation, and then stepping into the public square and seeking to pass laws establish practices, and encourage traditions in keeping with a biblical view of justice and righteousness. Let me label this first group the influencers. They want a Christianity-influenced nation, though I think the influencers need to drop the Christian nationalism or Christian nation label post-haste, as I'll argue in a moment. You can count me in with this group. To deny the role of Christian influence in the public square is to deny the lordship of Christ. Advocates of Christian nationalism in terms of identity mean all of this, but more. Let's call these folks the identifiers. They want to formally establish Christianity as the nation's official religion, which is what I mean by saying they want to give the nation an explicit Christian identity. This is like calling Saudi Arabia a Muslim nation, Israel a Jewish state, or even, if I might add for good measure, China a communist nation. Now, the distinction between an established and a non-established religion is not an on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch, which is why debates exist over whether Turkey is a Muslim nation, or India is Hindu, or America is or was Christian. These latter three have secular constitutions, but all three offer a few practices or laws that privilege one faith over others, if nothing more than the state recognition of a religious calendar and holidays. Still, most of us recognize that even when you factor in the complexities of the dimmer switch, there's a basic difference between establishment and non-establishment. An established religion is one that enjoys the patronage of the state. Its doctrine and practices receive the endorsement of the state. Its clergy and members receive certain advantages from the state, if in no other way than the fact that their tax dollars function simultaneously as offering plate dollars. And any changes to its doctrine and practice of the religion require the consent of the state. When the dimmer switch for establishing a religion is all the way up, 
A state effectively says, this is our God and we are his people, plus, sure, the Gentile rabble with us. This brings me back to the problem with the label Christian nationalism, or even the more common phrase Christian nation, and it's this. The service performed by that adjective Christian is to identify. It's declaring an identity. Christians might say they only mean for Christianity to influence a nation, not identify it. But when you call it a Christian nation, you can't get away from identity. This is why similar debates occur in Turkey and India over the Muslim and Hindu labels. People do or don't want that identity. Therefore, a word to my fellow influencers. By owning the label, you risk communicating something you don't mean to communicate, that you believe in an established church. That's undoubtedly what non-Christian critics are hearing. To be sure, they don't want Christian influence either, and they'll accuse you and me both of being Christian nationalists simply for talking about Christian influence. Fine. But my encouragement to you is don't defensively embrace a caricature. We don't believe in a Muslimized Christianity which ties Christ's name to a geopolitical space and people. Besides, that will only make the public debate worse because defensiveness on one side always yields more defensiveness on the other side. Another pro tip. Don't be fooled by the argument that refraining from establishing Christianity is adopting public atheism or a feigned neutrality. Refraining is recognizing a jurisdictional limit, a job description. A senator's job isn't to tell us who to worship, but to protect life. That job is not morally or religiously neutral. Now, a word to the identifiers or to anyone wondering whether an established church might help us out of our present moral chaos. Establishing religion can sometimes succeed in securing external moral behavior in the short term. Look at Muslim nations, for instance. Just don't peek into their closets. Yet it does a lousy job of producing moral behavior, truly moral behavior, over the long term, and an even worse job of generating true religion. Look at church-established Europe. When you ask the state to undertake the role of the church by rendering judgment on right doctrine, you subtly undermine New Covenant, Holy Spirit-birthed Christianity. After all, Jesus gave churches the authority to hand out the I'm with Jesus name tags and the this is right doctrine signs. That's what we do when we gather in his name and baptize in his name with the keys of the kingdom in hand, Matthew 16, 19, 18, 18 to 20, 28, 19. When the state establishes a church and names itself Christian, it participates in the name tag pinning and sign hanging work. It has usurped the keys and acted as a church. It has named people as Christians who are not Christians. This is anti-baptism, anti-Lord's Supper. It's also pro-nominalism and, therefore, missiologically careless. This is why churches who care about evangelism should care about this political theology conversation. Consider how much God cares about who is identified with his name. It led 
him to give a whole new covenant. Israel was identified with God's name, Deuteronomy 28.10, but their nominalism led to excommunication from the land. God then promised to return a new Israel for the sake of my holy name, Ezekiel 36.22-28. Yet, this new Israel, this new nation, turns out to be Jesus and everyone covenantally united to him. They're the ones he means to gather in his name and dwell with both now and always. The book of Acts then treats Christ's name with extraordinary care. The disciples call upon the name. 2.21.22.16 are charged not to teach in the name. 4.7.5.12 Delight in being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 5.42 Baptize in the name. 8.12.10.44.48 Command demons in the name. 16.18 And so on. The book of Acts cares deeply about where we place Christ's name. Should Ananias and Sapphira wear it? Simon the magician? Saul the persecutor of Christians? Who here represents Jesus? Acts refers to Christ's name 34 times in this manner. The language of Christian nationalism or Christian nation then unaccountably slaps Jesus' name onto a modern nation-state. It jumps from Israel straight to America without first passing through Jesus and the church. It fails to consider which duties the new covenant removes from the nation and hands to the church, such as the power of handing out the we're God's people name tags. As a result, this nation-sized baptism label confuses people about who represents Jesus, misleads them about what a Christian is, inoculates false professors against true Christianity, hardens non-professors against the real thing because of so many fake witnesses, creates the growing risk of syncretism inside churches, promotes nominalism, and therefore makes evangelism and missions harder, fools Christians into the complacency of thinking they're home when they're still exiles, and in all of this sends people to hell. No longing for what America once was, and in some ways I do, is worth all that. In short, Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus and so we should reject it. To those who wonder about labels like Christian family or Christian school or Christian radio station, the latter to refer to the content of instruction or material, while the former only works if every one individual is in fact a Christian, or if you want to insist in a Presbyterian fashion that your family is Christian due to the children's covenantal status or even just the advantages of being under Christian parents, then can we at least agree that none of those advantages apply to all the non-Christians in a nation? In short, Christian nationalism, in the sense of identity or establishment, doesn't push forward toward the eschaton, but backward toward the Old Covenant. It's anti-New Covenant. It nominalizes Christianity and, within a generation, undermines it altogether. Beyond that, I'd argue historically that the faith-robbing power of establishment Christianity is one significant reason why the church-established nations of Europe secularized, or better, paganized, 
much more quickly than the disestablishmentarian United States. Not only that, but my anecdotal sense is also that sincere Christian language and arguments have long been more common in the American public square than in European ones. Why? Though it may seem counterintuitive to people like us who prefer living by sight and sword and not by faith, disestablishmentarianism yields a vibrant faith that's politically active, not merely tokenized. So, to my establishmentarian friends, don't make Peter's mistake. Don't pick up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sword has good, God-given work to do to provide a platform for the church to stand on, safe roads so that we can drive to church, but we are not going to advance the kingdom through the sword. Many of the founding fathers and their Baptist sympathizers understood this. A religion that required the force of the sword was a weak religion indeed, they said. Finally, a word to the critics, especially the Christian ones, who deride even Christian influence. Christian influence in the public square shows love for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's loving to seek justice for our neighbors. If God made this world, he best knows how to operate it, whether people acknowledge him or not. By God's wisdom, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just, Proverbs 8.15. If God says X is an injustice and Y is just, that's what X and Y are. There's no alternative interpretation of X and Y. There's no neutral brand of justice out there. The public square, as I've said over and over, is a battleground of God's. Either my God or yours will win the majorities and pull the levers of power. The public square is not religiously neutral, and laws are not morally neutral. To be sure, the scales of justice should be impartial or blind, as one friendly critic has accused me of denying. Yet the foundation of our laws is never neutral. Everyone does what they do in the public square in service to their gods. That's true of the Christian and the Hindu, the secularist and the Marxist. We should then seek to apply or implement those laws impartially, objectively, and even neutrally, because that's what the Bible says we should do. Deuteronomy 16.19, Proverbs 24.23. If what you want is a Christian-influenced nation, then I stand with you. Yet an actual Christian nation has never existed and never will. Christian Europe was never really Christian. It was a continent of people sprinkled with water as infants. Actually, I take that back. A Christian nation does exist, and it's called the Church. 1 Peter 2.9. It's comprised of people from every nation on earth. Perhaps the best way to become a real Christian nationalist, then, is to join a church. And also, too, might I just point out, there's a little footnote here at the very bottom, which I will also read for you. It's an interesting footnote, and I quote, A word to my post-millennial friends, the Old Testament indeed addresses peoples according to their national identity, both in terms of its indictments and its promises. Examples included Isaiah 19. Yet aside from that being figurative language, God is no longer mediating his presence through a nation type, but through the anti-type Christ, such that 
all we who are united to Christ become a holy nation, a church, which is to say national borders and identities possessed a kind of historical redemptive significance under the old covenant, which they don't in the New Testament. They're demoted entirely to their common grace work. Doesn't Jesus tell his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, you might ask? Yes, but first Jesus moves from the neuter nations to a masculine them, meaning he's talking about people. Second, perhaps more decisively, we need to read Matthew 28, both in the context of Matthew 18, 18 through 20, as the textual connections of keys and authority, heaven, earth, name, and presence tell us we must, as well as in the context of the book of Acts. Revelation 7, 9's from all nations. It's not surprising, therefore, that never once in the New Testament do we see a nation baptized. Okay, so that's it, right? There, <clears throat> there you go. There's the whole thing, top to bottom, beginning to end. And not to be uncharitable to Jonathan Lehman here, but I want to start off by saying I don't regard this as a particularly well-written piece. I understand he's got an MDiv from Southern Seminary. I understand he's got a PhD in ecclesiology from the University of Wales. That does not mean that he can write. And if he can write, I don't take this article as evidence to that fact. So there you go. (laughs) Not to be rude. I am not trying to be churlish just because I disagree with his position. Even if I did agree with his position, uh, which I agree on some points, actually, with his position, I don't think this is a particularly well-written piece. And I want to be careful with some of the things that I am inclined to pick at on the chance that maybe he just was not writing very well or very carefully or he didn't take enough time to go back over and edit what he had written. He just hit publish in a little bit of a rush and it wasn't quite ready. Again, to repeat myself, I am not terribly familiar with Jonathan Lehman. I do find some points on which I can agree with him here and some other points where I could say, well, I can see where you're coming from on that, but uh, we differ nevertheless. For all I know, if I read other things by Jonathan Lehman, I would have a much stronger agreement on the points where I agree. I would have much less disagreement on some of the points where I think we disagree, Uh, at least at face value, what he's actually saying without knowing the man personally, without being a childhood friend of his, without going to his church, without living in his neighborhood, without doing life together per se. Just reading what he's written here, it looks like we disagree. You know, it could be that we would disagree less if I knew him better, was more familiar with his work. Uh, also, too, it could be that if I knew him better, we would disagree even more or I would be more convinced of our disagreement. Nevertheless, I disagree with the title here. I disagree with the premise, which is found in the piece and is summarized in the title, that Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus. Okay, so if Christian nationalism does not misrepresent Jesus, 
then it does not follow the second half of the title and the whole point of his writing, what he is writing here, it does not follow that we should then reject, or if we should reject Christian nationalism uh, all the same, we need to find a better reason or a different reason if the claim being made is dubious or just outright untrue. Does Christian nationalism misrepresent Jesus? Well, I aim to give that question some consideration in light of the points that Jonathan Lehman is making here. And so what we're going to do is go through quote by quote, and then I will share with you some notes I wrote down as I went. First of all, and this is a little ways in, he says, to deny the role of Christian influence in the public square is to deny the lordship of Christ. Now, I actually agree with that. Let's start off with a point of agreement. I agree with this statement. And I quote, to deny the role of Christian influence in the public square is to deny the lordship of Christ. Jonathan Lehman argues, however, for dropping the label Christian nationalism on the grounds that many can't tell the difference between saying we want Christian influence in the public square, which he's for, and I'm for, on the one hand, and on the other hand, meaning that the nation and the government of the nation should actually identify as Christian or be described by anyone as Christian. Now, once we get from the point on which he and I agree concerning influence and move into what might we call that influence, or if you will, where does that influence terminate What is the logical outcome of that influence if you're ultimately successful from a human relationships standpoint or from, again, the standpoint of influence, right? What what does absolute influence look like? If you had a blank check or a genie popped out and granted you three wishes and your three wishes could be spent on that influence, he and I agree, is necessary. It's a necessary consequence of our belief and our commitment to the Lordship of Christ. What would we wish for as far as the outcome of Christianity influencing the nation and its laws? Now, in my view, it's very logical. In fact, it's the most logical outcome that the influence will terminate if you are as successful as can be with regards to influence, humanly speaking, it will terminate in the nation and government, the nation and its laws actually identifying as Christian and doing so legitimately. Moving on, though, he writes, therefore, a word to my fellow influencers, by owning the label, you risk communicating something you don't mean to communicate, that you believe in an established church. That's undoubtedly what non-Christian critics are hearing. To be sure, they don't want Christian influence either, and they'll accuse you and me both of being Christian nationalists simply for talking about Christian influence. Fine. But my encouragement is don't defensively embrace a caricature. Now, here's my question. Here's my pushback. Is this what's happening? 
when those seeking to bring influence then accept being accused of Christian nationalism. Is that what is happening, that we are embracing a caricature? It seems to me to be more the case that the Christians piling on with condemnation of Christian nationalism may, for one, be fleeing when no one pursues, really, really truly. And for another thing, they're opting for more flight than fight to the possibility of incurring opprobrium and ridicule from non-Christians, non-Christian critics in particular. And another question, is this not how the left consistently works? They come up with a pejorative in bad faith with which to try and neutralize, stigmatize, isolate, ostracize their opponents. They play games with the definition of the term that they use as a pejorative to suit their desired change outcomes. Then they leverage the ugly pejorative they've stigmatized as a way of silencing dissent. If you don't get out of my way, if you don't keep quiet, if you don't say exactly what I want you to say, do exactly what I want you to do, I'm going to accuse you of fill in the blank, or I'm going to call you X, Y, and Z. And then your reputation will be in tatters. Some Christians take that to mean your testimony is therefore in tatters. If they can besmirch your reputation, they have therefore destroyed your testimony as a Christian. And therefore, this is a matter of faithfulness to God that you would preserve your testimony by doing what is necessary to keep them from damaging your reputation. If this is what the left consistently does, and if this is what the left is doing with regards to the so-called Christian nationalism, uh, ooga-booga, scary specter of a piece with MAGA extremists, extremist MAGA Republicans, etc., etc., well then, is it possible that the one who's really embracing a caricature is the one who says, I'm going to just avoid, like the plague, this term, which the left has now decided is a bad term. That's a bad thing to be accused of. You don't want to be accused of that. Moving on, Lehman writes, we don't believe in a Muslimized Christianity which ties Christ's name to a geopolitical space and people. Besides, that will only make the public debate worse because defensiveness on one side always yields more defensiveness on the other side. Again, I agree, at least generally, we don't believe in a Muslimized Christianity. I agree with that. But here's where I think we part ways. It doesn't follow to my way of thinking that Christian nationalism is the same thing as Muslimizing Christianity. I don't see those two as being one and the same thing. Also, too, with regards to defensiveness and at the risk of someone saying, you're just saying, well, he started it, right? That's not what I'm saying. But let me point out, those objecting to even just Christian influence in the public square are definitely being defensive and arguably far more defensive than Christians are with regards to 
this business of bringing influence, even to the point, yes, of hopefully our nation being able to identify itself as a Christian nation or others from other nations being able to identify ours as a Christian nation. I think it's not fair to blame the defensiveness of those who are hostile to Christian influence even. I think it's not fair to blame their defensiveness on Christians taking firm positions which godless secularists, leftists find objectionable. I think to some extent, those folks taking the offense or getting defensive with regards to so-called Christian nationalism need to own that and we need to behave appropriately and be making reasonable, valid arguments, giving a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. I also think that it's important to distinguish between defensiveness as a vice, which we associate with pride or insecurity on the one hand, and on the other hand, a virtuousness of defending truths and institutions, which are both important and under sustained and coordinated assault from hostile forces. I agree being defensive is bad in the way that we typically mean that on a personal basis. But I don't believe that defending something which is under attack, which is good and right and proper, I don't think that defending something that is good and right and proper from attack is the same thing as defensiveness. And we need to separate those out in our way of thinking. In order to be careful, in order to not imply something untoward, about those who are trying to defend the legitimacy of Christian influence in society. See also Augustine's City of God. But Lehman writes also, another pro tip, don't be fooled by the argument that refraining from establishing Christianity is adopting public atheism or a feigned neutrality. Refraining is recognizing a jurisdictional limit, a job description. Okay, as you say, But those hostile to Christianity in the public square who see no distinction at all between Christian influence and Christian identity, dismissing both alike as repressive and detestable, are wanting public atheism. They are wanting and insisting on genuine neutrality. Not feigned neutrality. They want genuine neutrality. That is to say, too, that the real temptation exists and it will exist for Christians to give these malefactors what they want in order to have some semblance of peace with them. Or else how could it be denied that we are tempted by that, among other things? How could it be denied that we are tempted to be more concerned for making peace with the godless than we are robustly affirming the lordship of Christ here and now? Of course, that's a temptation. That's got to be recognized as a temptation if we are to resist it. But if we say it's no temptation at all, and we make it into a virtue to give in to that temptation, I think that is not wise. And I'm not trying to imply that Jonathan Lehman sees it in those terms, but I see it in those terms, and therefore I cannot agree with, I cannot agree with what it is that he's concluding here. Now, I will say this with regards to 
The next quote that I don't believe establishing Christianity as the basis for our laws and our government and the way we orient our society and our nation. I don't believe that that is the same thing as establishing a church, as someone might say. Lehman writes, When the state establishes a church and names itself Christian, it participates in that name tag pinning and sign hanging work. It has usurped the keys and acted as a church. It has named people as Christians who are not Christians. This is anti-baptism, anti-Lord's Supper. But I ask, for one, again, who says the state should establish a church here in the United States? And this seems like it might be a bit of a straw man argument, or... It could be evidence that the premise of our secularist detractors has been internalized regardless of its merit or lack thereof. But I know this, at least, I am not arguing for the state to establish a church. And that being the case, Lehman would likely put me in the influencers category. And yet, all the same, his concern, I would note, for slippery slopes, has to apply equally to all sides of these kinds of debates, or else not at all. Avoidance of slippery slopes can become its own slippery slope. Also, the ideal is not to resign ourselves to passive influence just because we have ruled out the possibility that all our countrymen will truly become Christians. Those who say America was a Christian nation if it no longer can be called such, have never, in my understanding, meant that as though all Americans have at any point in our history been Christians on an individual basis. No one who talks about America having formerly been a Christian nation ever supposes that every man, woman, and child in the U.S. was a Christian. Certainly not to my understanding. I haven't run across that. It has never been my understanding that that is what is meant. If that is what anyone supposes, that everyone was a Christian at any point in our history, I would say that is folly. Surely, surely you jest. (laughs) But I don't think that's anyone's view. I just don't. I don't think that's anyone's standpoint or claim that we need to get back to calling ourselves a Christian nation so that therefore all Americans, all our countrymen, will then be individually Christians. Job done, case closed, just like that. But I also disagree with Lehman if he supposes we would need to say that every last man, woman, and child in America has to be a Christian in order to say that America is a Christian nation. Or what? Do we say that every last citizen of China has to be a communist before we will call China a communist country? Do we suppose that every last citizen of Saudi Arabia has to individually be a Muslim before we can say that Saudi Arabia is a Muslim nation? For that matter, too, if we look at where we're at right now, not every citizen of the United States of America needs to be a secular humanist, pluralist, or progressive 
for us to say that these terms have come to typify and accurately describe the kind of country the United States at least has been for the past several decades. And yet, by Lehman's reasoning, as it seems to me, it's all or nothing. But I would say to that, if we would all have to be Christians to be a Christian nation, our country being a secular, humanist, pluralistic, progressive nation, or us describing it in those terms, must apparently mean that all Americans are that. We are all pluralists. We are all secular humanists. We are all progressives. If that's what the reputation of our country is, if that's what the identity and character of our government and our laws increasingly are. But I'm not. I know that I'm not a secular humanist. I know that I'm not a pluralist. I know that I'm not a progressive. I may be influenced by those ways of thinking, but I try not to be. It's not for want of study and contemplation and grappling with the issues. Moving on, Lehman writes, it's also pro-nominalism and therefore misiologically careless. This is why churches who care about evangelism should care about this political theology conversation. Consider how much God cares about who is identified with his name. It led him to give a whole new covenant. Israel was identified with God's name, Deuteronomy 28.10, but their nominalism led to excommunication from the land. God then promised to return a new Israel for the sake of my holy name, Ezekiel 36.22-28. All right. Now, first of all, before I speak to this, for those of you who don't know, you may be wondering, what is nominalism? Simply this, nominalism in metaphysics, according to Wikipedia, is the view that universals and abstract objects do not actually exist other than being merely names or labels. So basically, if you will, objective truth is not really real. So we name things, we call things, whatever we will, but that's not what they really truly are. Also from Oxford Languages, we get this definition. The doctrine that universals or general ideas are mere names without any corresponding reality, and that only particular objects exist, properties, numbers, and sets are thought of as merely features of the way of considering the things that exist. So, basically, it's a rejection of objective truth. And if I'm not misunderstanding the subject, someone please educate me. I have good friends who are philosophers. One of them can set me straight, if needs be. It is a problem to say that all that exists generally, universally, is names, what we call things. That's nominalism. It's just nomos, names. Yes, it's a problem. Nominalism is. But how is it pro-nominalism to say that we want the American nation to be so influenced by Christianity that its identity can be said to be that of a Christian nation? How does that follow? Also, if it does follow, how is it not even more pro-nominalism to say we would accept America being a secular, humanist, pluralistic, 
and progressive nation. How is that not even more pro-nominalism? I'm not quite sure I understand. seems to me as though if we were to say we want America to be a Christian nation, that would be less nominalism compared with supposing that everyone's morality, everyone's definitions of right and wrong, good and evil, true and false, everyone's definitions are welcome. And it's all the same. As long as we don't pick one, as long as we just mix them together. Whatever reasons, also, there might be for objecting to the risk of theological minimalism, inherent to a kind of ecumenical Christian political consensus that might potentially govern the U.S. now or in the future, and formerly did, to my way of thinking, there are only more such reasons to object to the expansion of ecumenicism to include people of all religious faiths and even those who claim to have no faith whatsoever on an equal footing with regards to their outlook on morality, on what is right and wrong, on what is good and evil. I am concerned about theological minimalism. I am concerned about nominalism. I certainly don't want to be missiologically careless, but it's for those reasons. It's because that's the case, I'm concerned about this very pluralistic, anything-goes approach to engagement and influence. What, what does our way of trying to influence or the kind of influence we're trying to get speak to as far as the kind of Christianity that we believe in or live out or hold to? That's a double-edged sword, I realize, but there you have it. I see that as being something we have to consider. We have to answer. We have to grapple with. Not just if we are in favor of so-called Christian nationalism. But Lehman writes, this new Israel, this new nation, turns out to be Jesus and everyone covenantally united to him. They're the ones he means to gather in his name, baptize in his name, and dwell with both now and always. The book of Acts then treats Christ's name with extraordinary care. The disciples call upon the name, are charged not to teach in the name, delight in being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, baptize in the name, command demons in the name, and so on. The book of Acts cares deeply about where we place Christ's name. Should Ananias and Sapphira wear it? Simon the magician? Saul the persecutor of Christians? Who here represents Jesus? Acts refers to Christ's name 34 times in this manner. All right, but the underlying premise is not sound, as I see it. Therefore, the conclusions must either be dismissed or find a new home in order to regain legitimacy. To say that America has been or would be again a Christian nation is not to say that every last person who is a citizen of the nation is really and truly a Christian or was really and truly a Christian at the point when we called America a Christian nation. But let's talk about some of these other institutions we typically do call Christian, besides nations. We don't refuse to say that this or that home is 
Christian unless we can certify that every man, woman, and child who resides in it is safely in the fold. If a Christian man and wife without children are able to call themselves a Christian family until they have a child, they don't have to wait until their child either makes a personal claim to faith in Christ or else moves out to keep on calling theirs a Christian home. It was a Christian home until you arrived, baby boy, baby girl. Now it's not a Christian home anymore. Well, someday, hopefully, you either come to faith or move out, and then we can call this a Christian home again. Now, we understand when children are born to a Christian father and mother, we understand what is meant in describing that home as a Christian home or that family as a Christian family. What is not meant is that from little on up, every one of those children, we're just sure, is a Christian, but we characterize the comportment of the home, the aim and direction of the home, the leadership of the home by Christianity. And we say, that's a Christian home, that's a Christian family. Or at least that's my common experience, that's my common understanding. If Lehman's is dramatically other, then this could be a more comprehensive disagreement where he doesn't really understand what folks like me have in the way of expectations from a term like Christian nationalism and vice versa. His expectations for a term like Christian nationalism, if they are not of the kind and type I would have for when someone says this or that home or family is a Christian home or a Christian family, well then, it might make some sense why he's reacting the way that he is to this term Christian nationalism. I think it's silly, but it might be more consistent. But what about Christian schools? What about Christian colleges? Similar to the home or the family, we don't call only schools and colleges we're sure every last member of the faculty and the student body is personally really, truly a Christian and Christian. We don't have that assumption or that expectation when we say that this is a Christian school or it's a Christian college. What we mean is that the pedagogy is Christian, the mission is Christian, the leadership, generally speaking, is claiming Christianity and generally speaking, teaching, operating, conducting itself in a way that matches that claim, that's in harmony with that claim. We don't say, if that is the case, we're going to hold off calling a school or a college or a university Christian so long as there's the chance that any one person associated with that school or college or university might not be a Christian. This one, I know, will bother some, probably, but I would go a step farther than just homes and families and schools and colleges and universities that we call Christian. What about churches? What about local churches? I say we should not suppose every last man, woman, and child in a church building or membership role must themselves be really and truly a Christian before we call a specific local body of believers or denomination a Christian church. I don't suffer under any illusions that everyone 
in a church, in a local church, or in a denomination that has a good doctrinal statement, that has sound leadership, everyone personally, everyone individually is really and truly a Christian. I think some are going to hear in probably most congregations, most local churches, every denomination, on the last day, from the Savior, from the Lord himself, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. I don't know you. You're not one of mine. That being the case, imagine what confusion there would be if we embraced Lehman's reasoning with regards to churches, that we would refuse to call a church Christian until we were sure that every last person in the building or on the membership list was personally a Christian. Every one of them. In all these cases, what we mean by calling this or that institution Christian is that its beliefs, claims, aims, means, ends, positions are intent on alignment with what God's word says God's will is. The position of Christian nationalists would seem to me to be that our expectation and effort at influence and identity on the national level should be the same as it is in the home, in the schools, in our churches. To submit every sphere of our lives to the Lordship of Christ and to take every thought captive to Christ is a work in progress. It's not an all-or-nothing endeavor, which we dare not either admit to or make note of until we attain perfection. That's just not the way that it works. That's not a reasonable thing. That's not what we're called to. You don't say that with regards to your home. You don't say that with regards to your school. You don't say that with regards to your church, that it's all or nothing. Just keep quiet until you're sure that you're sure that you're sure you've attained perfection. No. Lehman writes, the language of Christian nationalism or Christian nation then unaccountably slaps Jesus' name onto a modern nation state. It jumps from Israel straight to America without first passing through Jesus and the church. It fails to consider which duties the new covenant removes from the nation and hands to the church, such as the power of handing out the we're God's people name tags. As a result, this nation-sized baptism label confuses people about who represents Jesus, misleads them about what a Christian is, inoculates false professors against true Christianity, hardens non-professors against the real thing because of so many fake witnesses, creates the growing risk of syncretism inside churches, promotes nominalism, and therefore makes evangelism and missions harder, fools Christians into the complacency of thinking they're home when they're still exiles, and in all of this, sends people to hell. No longing for what America once was, and in some ways I do, is worth all of that. Now, let's go item by item here. Lehman says that this nation-sized baptism label confuses people about who represents Jesus. Again, except for scale, this is no more of a risk with nation than what we take in calling a home, a school, or a church Christian. Risks confusing who actually represents Jesus. Lehman writes that it misleads them about what a Christian is. And I would say this only follows if the claim or presumption is that all the citizens must be Christians if we call a nation Christian. Also, this only follows if we are convinced, as seems to be the insinuation here, that a true Christian will rarely, if ever, wield political power or identify themselves with a nation. 
I don't think that follows. I don't think that assumption is sound, Lehman writes. For us to use the language of Christian nationalism or calling America a Christian nation unaccountably slaps Jesus' name onto a modern nation state and therefore inoculates false professors against true Christianity. I ask, how would it do that only by requiring of them an adherence to what God's word teaches us about right and wrong or about good and evil? I am not saying that America is the new and better Israel. However, I would draw your attention to things we can learn from ancient Israel, important truths and observations about ancient Israel and how this actually has worked on a national level. Surely we have some ability to affect the national character here in the U.S. Otherwise, it's an odd thing that Lehman is writing about this, encouraging us to influence and thinking that that's a possibility that we can influence America. But I ask you, in ancient Israel, in biblical Old Testament Israel, how were the sojourners regarded? Was it confused whether they were God's chosen people if they were required, for instance, to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy while they were sojourning among the Israelites? No, no. For them to be expected to adhere to this standard, whether or not they actually worship Yahweh God, I think establishes the premise that it is reasonable for Christians to say, ours will be a Christian morality, and we want that. And when our laws and our policies and our government and our society is organized according to Christian morality, Christian virtue, It will be fair to describe our nation as a Christian nation, whether or not every man, woman, and child in our nation is themselves individually a Christian. Also, too, I would point out Romans 13 says, The governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. To say that America has been a Christian nation or could be again or that we would want it to be again is merely to my way of seeing things, to say that America might consciously endeavor to submit our definitions of good and evil to the word. How can we say that that inoculates false professors against true Christianity? Unless there's an antinomianism to where we say, we don't want law. We are against law. We cannot have grace and any reference at all to thou shalt or thou shalt not, do, do not. No, no. What is it Jesus will say on the last day to those who say to him, Lord, Lord, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we're not called to be lawless. That is not the same thing as living under God's grace. But Lehman says, This will harden non-professors against the real thing because of so many fake witnesses. And I ask, is that not also a complaint with regards to the Christian home or the Christian school or the Christian church, for that matter, at a local level? See, there's a kind of playing scared 
quality to the attitude about a hypothetical Christian nation. I don't think this is a particularly good argument or reason in principle. You need sterner stuff to base your claims on than this, I think. Now, this could be a reason to be sober about it and to say, hey, like, let's take this seriously. It does have real consequences that are important. Don't play around. But, again, we don't refuse to call a home, a school, or a church Christian because some non-Christian may see an imperfection in any or all of the above and be hardened against true Christianity. Lehman says, the language of Christian nationalism or a Christian nation creates the growing risk of syncretism inside churches. At the risk of repeating myself, I would say I think the risk of syncretism in churches is arguably higher so long as we identify ourselves as secular, humanistic, pluralistic progressives by virtue of being American citizens content with the status quo politically and socially. Now, you might ask, what is syncretism? If you're not familiar, let's look that one up as well. Oxford Languages says it's simply this. The amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. The merging of different inflectional varieties of a word during the development of a language. These two things being closely related. Basically, you're trying to combine these religions in a new age way. Now, we don't want to do that with Christianity, where we say it's all the same. We all worship the same God. No, no, we don't. If we did, if that were the case, that we all worship the same God, it was a very curious thing that God commanded us to not have any other gods before him, as if that was possible. So the fact that God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, within itself disproves the claim that we all worship the same God just by different names. But Lehman says, using this language of Christian nationalism or a Christian nation, fools Christians into the complacency of thinking they're home when they're still exiles. And I admit, I find this to be a very odd complaint, if only for the reason that I immediately think about how this could be used as an argument against Christians ever being comfortable in their own individual homes. So what I mean is my home, my personal home is in Greeley, Colorado, and I share it with my wife and our eight kids. And right now, actually, we have been pretty uncomfortable this week because we removed all the furniture from our main floor so that flooring contractors could come in on fairly short notice and tear up all the carpet and tile and replace it with tongue and groove locking vinyl planks that look like wood. But if even past when the flooring is done, we try to make our home as intentionally uncomfortable as we possibly can. Does that honor Christ better? So long as it reminds us that this earth is not our home. Is that what we're called to? I I don't think that's what we're called to. If my infant is fussing, and I try to make him comfortable, and soothe him back to sleep and calm him down. I can love him thereby. It's not 
selfishness and it's not carnality and it's not forgetting that this earth is not my home. I'm trying to serve the Lord faithfully with the time that I have here, the opportunities that I have here. And if I can love my wife and my children well, for instance, by making our home comfortable, making them comfortable, providing for them, well, that's what I should do. I should pursue that. That's noble and commendable and praiseworthy and proper. So why would Lehman complain that Christians are going to be fooled into complacency with regards to thinking they're home when they're still exiles? Also, too, let me point out, when Lehman uses this language of exiles, which is entirely appropriate, biblically, we are exiles. Peter picks up on that as well in the New Testament. Jeremiah 29, however, says God's people in exile should build homes, plant gardens and vineyards and take wives and have children and give their children away in marriage when they've grown up and increase in the land and not decrease in the land and seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile. And this is not a way of forgetting that we are exiles. It's how we make the most of our exilic status and circumstance out of obedience to the God who put us here and keeps us here. Now, we could debate about whether mere influence or identity is what we should aspire to as reasonable as far as visions go regarding what kind of earthly success is possible, realistic in this regard. And yet, I can't see how we could employ the language of exiles, miss the corresponding godliness of seeking both our own welfare and that of the city in which we are exiles, then commit ourselves to influence only and never identity at a national level, if it could be had in the way we want to identify our homes, schools, and churches as Christian. As it seems to me, to use Lehman's own words, this is a dimmer switch. And so if the influence were turned all the way up, cranked to 100%, would we not say that there was more than just influence? There was something about the identity of our nation, the character of our nation, that had changed fundamentally for the better. I say yes. But then Lehman says, in all this, in all this, using this language of Christian nationalism and Christian nation, sends people to hell. And again, I say, if the foundation is questionable, unsound, the structure built on that foundation is also going to be unstable. If the premise and presuppositions here are not true, the conclusion is also unreasonable, or at least it has to look somewhere else for legitimacy. And yet it's curious because the next thing Lehman says, he says, no longing for what America once was, and in some ways I do, is worth all of that. And if he were right that using the terms Christian nation or Christian nationalism is sending people to hell, then I might agree with him. But I'm curious, why does Lehman admit here that America once was more a Christian nation than it is now? And why would any part of him long for the America that was if it was more a Christian nation previously than it is now? Also, is it possible that maybe just maybe America was greater when it was good, according to God's word, 
to a greater degree. And that was more true that we were good according to what God's word says about good and evil. In more recent American history, it seems like the conscious effort hasn't just been neutrality or to undo these constraints with regards to what God says to do or not do or says is good or evil. It seems as though there's been an effort, a conscious effort, to systematically celebrate and affirm and pursue and incentivize whatever God says is an abomination to him and to denigrate what God says is honorable. And this is not preferable. I think it's arguably sending as many or more people to hell than what Lehman worries would hypothetically be the case where a national revival and reformation of Christian morality to occur. Would a revival of Christian nationalism occur? It's hard to imagine that sending more people to hell than are being sent to hell right now. When Christians suppose all manner of wickedness and evil and corruption is to be celebrated, <clears throat> affirmed, syncretized with our Christian faith in the interest of love and inclusion. But here Lehman says in the midpoint, in short, Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus, and so we should reject it. And I say, if Lehman is wrong that Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus, we should reject his advice instead of rejecting Christian nationalism. Now, the last thing I'll say, and then I've got to run, because it's actually quite late. I was having trouble sleeping. Everyone else went to bed ahead of me early. I thought I was going to be able to get some sleep tonight. Now it's time to, I think. But I want to get to this last paragraph, and then I'm going to call it good. Lehman writes, To those who wonder about labels like Christian family or Christian school or Christian radio station, the latter two refer to the content of instruction or material, while the former only works if every one individual is in fact a Christian, or if you want to insist in a Presbyterian fashion that your family is Christian due to the children's covenantal status, or even just the advantages of being under Christian parents, then can we at least agree that none of these advantages apply to all the non-Christians in a nation? And to that I say, we apparently can't agree about that. Now, for one, God sends his reigns on the just and the unjust. Common grace is still grace, even if it is not special grace. The governing authority the Apostle Paul writes of to the church at Rome is not only rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil if they are Christians, and not only Christians benefit if sin and evil are restrained in a society. Yet here I see Lehman anticipates my complaint by bringing up Christian families in schools and radio stations. And yes, you know what? Perhaps he's consistent in his reasoning. But that's only fully commendable if he's consistently right. If he's consistent, but he's consistently wrong, well, I don't know that that's quite as virtuous. He avoids an additional shame of being both wrong and inconsistent. But if he's still wrong, he's wrong. Being consistent doesn't make him right. And yet he does say, he does say that a Christian home cannot be called such if any member of the family is not a Christian. You can call me a Presbyterian if you want to, but I think that's silly. We all know what's meant by describing a family or home as Christian. What is meant 
by us is not what Lehman is insisting has to be meant. And yet Lehman also says Christian schools and radio stations are special because they have to do with content of instruction or material. And to that I ask, what our Republican form of government's laws, policies, rulings, and actions are if they are not based on content of instruction or material? That is, the content of instruction or material is, according to James, half-brother of Jesus in the New Testament, supposed to be to the end of good works, motivated by faith. And what will we say that good and evil are real things that have significance only if one is a Christian acting in faith in relation to them? No, 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 no. Again, Paul says the governing authority is a minister of God as well to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. The church is not the only minister of God. The governing authority is also the minister of God. And yet Paul doesn't say rewards and punishments for good and evil only apply to Christians or only benefit Christians. We have to make note of that. We have to. There are other things Lehman writes here, which I object to, which I disagree with, from pages 7 to 11 of what I copied and pasted. I'll just have to pick this up again in our next episode. I appreciate your time, your attention. Thanks again to JP for having sent this article over. More to come, rather than cutting this one short and saying no more about it, or trying to record the rest of what I might say tonight I'll say to be continued as always thank you for listening until next time God bless You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.